bone and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you or those used as sources for our show. We'll be sharing with you tonight some interesting selections from one of these volumes, assisted, as always, by the housekeeper of this estate and co-host of this show, Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I'm going to start by breaking a rule Mrs. Carswell and I agreed upon last week. But we did agree on this one exception. Yes, the rule pertains to my owl, Strix, whom we agreed to stop talking about for one week, as it was causing too much friction. But we did think we owed listeners an update. Yes. Um, so, I am sorry to say it, but Strix has not been found. Not yet, at least. Okay, well, that should be it on that topic. Even though we both have lots of feelings on the subject. Uh, lots more could be said, but won't. That's the rule. Okay, so, instead, we decided to get away from all that, get away from our little world, and reach out, ask some questions, and share the responses instead of more talking about ourselves. Well, naturally, I, I thought it was a terrible idea initially, but uh, apparently it's something called listener engagement and is supposed to be good for show ratings. Mr. Ridenauer and I were discussing the topic of this episode, witches, and whether that was something we should save for the Halloween season. But then we started debating whether it had already started. So that was one of two questions we posed. When does the Halloween season begin? And there was another question, but we'll save that for a future show. So, if you gave a response and don't hear it this episode, it may be in the next. Mrs. Carswell has organized the responses and will be reading excerpts. The questions were posed via our Facebook group and to our subscribers on Patreon. I should point out that certain names, when mentioned, will be adorned with a fancy little audio effect, which I'll be adding in post. It will be a little extra, designating their highly valued patron status. Uh, one of the perks of membership, so to speak. Should I just start reading then? Yeah, no, uh, wait. Uh, I think I'm going to add a little Halloween-y background music here. I like that. It'll be its own segment. When does Halloween begin. So, let's see. A lot of people mentioned the weather as something that tells them when it's time to start thinking about Halloween. Almost like you can sniff it out. Almost a feral, instinctual thing. That's exactly what one person said. Marcus S. wrote, it starts when you can smell the difference in the air. Exactly. And Cameron Smith says it begins... As soon as the oppressive summer weather starts to fade, around the beginning of September. Jocelyn Folgert agrees. When the weather turns, and you can feel it, 
especially on mornings or evenings, and everything seems to get a bit darker, but a bit golden, too. Nice. Oh, yes. And there's another person who mentions the weather. She just gives her first name, but I'm going to pause after it so you can insert your Patreon effect. Okay, good. Jennifer. That's long enough. Okay, I wasn't sure. And then there are others who just say it begins somewhere at the end of August and beginning of September. Rachel P. I start to decorate the house for Halloween at the beginning of September, but it can wobble a week either way. Same for Dina Engelman, who has a birthday coming up the day before Halloween. By the way, happy early birthday, Dina! Yes, and same for listener Eric R., And some listeners made a point of waiting till later in September. Bets Crockett and... I'm going to pause again for the next two. You don't have to say you're going to pause. Just pause. Uh, All right. Brandon Allendorf. Victoria Howard. And then we have two who actually wait till October. Such restraint. And they are patrons. Erpso, Anne Knight. Uh, what about the Michaelmas crew? That's uh, St. Michael's Day, the next to last day of September, so it's practically October. Oh, yes. The one who talks about that the most is another patron, Anne Lubin. She wrote, Maybe we should go by Blackberry Rules. Superstitions dictate that the berries fall under the rule of the devil in autumn and are unlucky or dangerous to consume beginning on Michaelmas Day and are better left as an offering for him for the rest of the season. That feels like a fitting symbolic death of the summer and a good time to haul out any straggler skeletons. Yeah, well, and there's also a superstition that the devil urinates on any unpicked blackberries on that day. That doesn't sound very nice. No, not to everyone's tastes. And there are two more. Brad Fisher says, I usually start right after Michaelmas, since that's generally the end of the harvest. And Tim Shewan gives two dates. After the autumn equinox, or Michaelmas. Ah, more traditionalists. Good. There's also this last group. The year-rounders. Yes, Rachel P. had an interesting point when she says she heard from another podcast. What other podcast? Uh, She doesn't say. Probably best. Anyway, she says that there's the year-round Halloween and the calendar Halloween. Calendar Halloween. I like that. And then these two patrons also believe it should be year-round. See, Scott... Erica Cooper. C. Scott wrote, as a small girl in a recently viral video said... No, wait, wait. I want to play the original clip he's referring to. The quote's much better straight from the little girl. True. So we'll close out this segment with that. Then at the end of the show, in lieu of a Carswell's Corner and closing credits, I'm going to add a, a musical remix of this very short but viral video. 
Stephanie's cute, but I hope the little girl's okay. You know what? Oh, she's fine, I'm sure. She knows who she is. Uh, so as I said, it's very short, but here is the mom or aunt or someone asking the little girl, maybe she's four or five, the all-important question. Why do you like Halloween so much? It's always Halloween in my soul. Indeed. And this is episode 117, Six Witches. I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and am currently working on a related volume. Once that work is complete, at some point later in the fall, probably, we will be returning to our old format. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including not one, but two bonus episodes. You can find out what else is received by going to patreon.com and searching for Bone and Sickle. Tonight's episode presents Six Cases of Witchcraft, as related in the 1880 volume by James Grant, entitled The Mysteries of All Nations, and then the long subtitle, Rise and Progress of Superstition, Laws Against, and Trials of Witches, Ancient and Modern Delusions, Together with Strange Customs, Fables, and Tales. And I hope you enjoy these selections on witchcraft. Our uh, first story is about Rose Cullender and Anne Dunny. Sir Matthew Hale, the astute lawyer and judge, was a believer in witchcraft and entertained views on this subject similar to those of Mr. Forbes, as will appear from the following particulars of the trial of Rose Cullender and Anne Dunny in 1664. These women were accused before Sir Matthew Hale of various acts of witchcraft, such as tormenting children by means of devilish devices, upsetting carts, killing horses, breeding vermin, etc., through diabolical means. At the trial, evidence was given by Anne Durant that William Durant, her son, one of the children bewitched, had strange and sad fits caused by Dunny giving the child suck. A wise man, Dr. Jacob, advised her to hang up the child's blanket in the chimney corner all day, and at night, when she went to put the child to bed, if she found anything in the blanket, to throw the thing, whether apparently animate or inanimate, into the fire. The blanket was hung up and shaken, according to instructions, when, behold, a large toad fell on the hearthstone. The creature was thrown into the fire and exploded like a gun. Next day, a friend of Dunny's reported that a certain old woman was severely burned. On hearing this, the witness went to the old woman's house and found her grievously scorched. Dunny, for it was she who was in this sad condition, told the witness that because of the evil she did to her, she, Dunny, 
would like to see much evil befall the Durant family. The witness further stated that her daughter Elizabeth Durant, about 10 years of age, was afflicted like her other child, and in her fits complained of Anne Dunny tormenting her. Dunny had, so said the witnesses, predicted that the child named would not live long, and within three days the child died. The witness also testified that Dunny had, while in a rage, said that she, the witness, would yet be going with crutches, a prophecy followed by the witness becoming so lame in both her legs that she could not walk without being supported by sticks. And indeed, said she, exhibiting a pair of crutches in the witness box, I could not come into court without them. After lengthened and curious evidence touching the charges against the prisoners for bewitching the children named in the indictment, Dr. Brown, a gentleman of great learning, expressed his opinion that the children were bewitched. He said that in Denmark there had been a great discovery of witches who used the very same way of afflicting people, that is, by conveying pins and nails into them in a mysterious way. His opinion was that the devil in witchcraft did work upon the bodies of men and women and afflict them with such distempers as their bodies were most subject to. John Sloan testified that, while bringing home three carts of hay, one of the carts accidentally damaged the window of Rose Colander's house, and that she, in consequence of this mishap, uttered violent threats against him. The other two carts passed her house safely several times that day, but the cart which damaged the window was two or three times overturned. Once, when taking the unlucky vehicle through a gate, it stuck fast, though nothing could be seen that prevented it from being drawn along easily. After great trouble, the cart was brought home, but there again, fresh difficulties had to be encountered. The vehicle could not be taken to the place where it was intended to be unloaded. And what most frightened the witness and those aiding him was that everyone who approached the cart to render any assistance on that eventful day came away with his nose bleeding. Robert Sheringham swore that Rose Colliner, taking offense at him, threatened him and his horses with injury. And in short time, many of his horses and cattle died. Richard Spencer testified that he had heard Anne Dunny say that the devil would not let her rest until she took her revenge upon Cornelius Zanswell. The judge told the jury that they were to inquire first whether the several acts of witchcraft mentioned in the indictment in the indictment had been committed, and, secondly, if they had, it was for them to say whether the prisoners were the guilty persons. The jurors, he said, could not doubt that there were such creatures as witches, for history affirmed it, and the wisdom of all nations has provided laws against such persons. He prayed that the hearts of the jury might be directed in the mighty thing they had in hand. For to condemn the innocent and to let the guilty go free were alike an abomination. The jury brought in a verdict of guilty. The judge then passed sentence of death against the culprits, and they were executed. And now, the case of 
Alexander Agnew. In October 1654, Alexander Agnew, a sturdy beggar, threatened hurt to Gilbert Campbell's household because he did not receive so good an alms as he demanded. The vagabond, by diabolical means, brought about a variety of annoyances and losses that came nigh to ruin the family. Gilbert Campbell was often hindered in business through his working instruments being destroyed in a way he could not account for. In November, matters became extremely dangerous. At that time, the devil, we are informed, came with new and extraordinary assaults by throwing stones in through the doors and windows and chimney head of his devil-besetted dwelling. Providentially, no one was injured in person. Next, chests and trunks were opened and the contents thrown about in all directions. Working implements were secretly carried away and concealed in holes or other places where they were not likely to be found. Wearing apparel, blankets, sheets, curtains, and other soft goods were cut to pieces. To so great a strait was the family reduced that the members thereof were compelled to leave their house. Nor was this all. Campbell himself was forced to abandon his employment. The minister, hearing that the house was shut up, remonstrated against such a proceeding. He recommended that the devil should be withstood to the face. Acting on the good clergyman's advice, all the members of that afflicted household returned. Fresh disturbances broke out. The house was set on fire and would have been reduced to ashes had not willing neighbors extinguished the flames. As the evil went on, prayer and fasting was resorted to, apparently unmixed with faith, for again the house was set on fire. The ministers met at the house for solemn devotion, but their prayers were as ineffectual as those of the people who had conducted the religious services on previous occasions. Indeed, things became worse. Not only were petty acts of mischief perpetrated, but strange voices were heard, without it being known whence they proceeded. The minister, accompanied by a gentleman of good position, went again to the house to pray with and for Mr. Campbell and his family. After prayer, they all heard a voice speaking out of the ground, asking if they desired to know anything of certain witches who were named. Gilbert Campbell informed the company that one of the witches mentioned was dead. The devil then answered, It is true she is dead, yet her spirit is living in this world. The minister replied, We are not to receive any information from thee, Satan. Thou art but speaking to seduce this family. All the people went again to pray, still the devil was not put to silence. The foul fiend demanded a spade to dig a grave in which he might rest in peace. Advised by the clergyman, Mr. Campbell answered, Not so much as a straw shall be given thee, though that would put thee to rest. A loud noise was heard, and a naked hand and an arm from the elbow were seen beating on the floor so terribly that the house shook during which the voice called several times, I will send my father among you. 
Night being now far spent, all the strangers went home except the minister, who stayed with the family to protect them. Notwithstanding his presence and many prayers, the devil roared frightfully, his voice sounding like that of a lion. The very food the family partook of was bewitched. It did not supply them with nourishment nor satisfy their hunger, even for a moment. Mr. Campbell resolved to apply to the Synod for advice as to whether he should remain in his house. When the subject came before that revered body, the fathers and brethren thought fit to ordain a solemn humiliation to be observed, with the view of turning away the affliction that distressed the poor family. Notwithstanding everything that could be done, the annoyance continued for a whole year. It was never discovered who was the instigator of the mischief, although strong suspicion rested on the sturdy beggar who, we may observe in conclusion, was hanged some time afterwards. And uh, now we'll conclude with a few shorter ones, also from Scotland. Janet Wood. One night, a gentleman in the West, riding home, was suddenly stopped by an unseen hand seizing his horse's bridle rein. Having his sword, he first struck at one side of his horse's head and then at the other. The animal, now unrestrained, galloped home. When, on putting the horse into the stable, the gentleman found the hand cut off at the wrist hanging to the bridle reins. Suspecting he had been waylaid by Janet Wood, a reputed witch in the neighborhood, he called on her the next day and found her in bed. She complained of being ill. After conversing with her for a short time, he rose to take his leave and held out his hand to shake hands with her. She offered him her left hand, but he refused to take it, saying it was unfriendly to use the left hand for such a friendly purpose. After a good deal of hesitation, she admitted that she had lost her right hand in an encounter she had the previous night when out on witch business. The gentleman produced the hand, and on it being compared with her stump, it fitted exactly. The question then came to be how the stroke took effect, for no ordinary sword could have injured the witch, and it turned out that it had been charmed by the owner's grandmother, a sensible old woman. Alexander Hamilton Alexander Hamilton, a warlock, was indicted for sorcery. He was enticed away by the devil, so the complaint made it appear, in the likeness of a black man, to Kingston Hills, East Lothian. In consideration of the poor man renouncing his baptism and promising to obey his satanic master, that grim contractor on his part engaged that the accused should never want. 
The panel thereafter often called Satan up by means of beating the ground three times with the fur stick, and he answered to the summons sometimes like a crow, and sometimes like a cat or dog. By the devil's assistance, Hamilton injured those who hurt him. In particular, he burned Provost Coburn's mill full of corn by pulling out three stalks of corn from the provost's stacks and burning them at Gaintun Hill. From the indictment, it would appear the devil instructed him how to prepare an ointment from the oil of spikenard and heart's grease to cure diseases. That's not all bad, I guess. Agnes Williamson In the year 1662, Agnes Williamson, residing at Samuelston, Haddingtonshire, was indicted for witchcraft. She was charged, among other things, with taking the strength out of her neighbor's meal by her enchantments, with raising a whirlwind and thereby throwing her neighbor into the water where she saw her and other witches swimming about, and, by her sorcery, setting fire to her neighbor's malt kiln, all by merit of renouncing her baptism and taking the new name of Nanny Luckfoot. The jury brought in a verdict of guilty as to her being, habit and repute, a witch, but they acquitted her of all the other charges. Elizabeth Bathgate In the beginning of the 17th century, Elizabeth Bathgate, spouse of Alexander Pay, a maltman in Eymouth, was prosecuted at the instance of the Lord Advocate for Sorcery. The charges exhibited against her were 18 number, from which the following are selected. Causing the death of George Sprott's child by giving it an enchanted egg, throwing the said George Sprott into extreme poverty by her sorcery, making a horse sweat to death through the same means, and killing an ox by dancing on the barn in which the animal stood, using conjuration and running Wittishens in the mill of Eymouth, standing bare-legged in her petticoat at twelve o'clock at night, conferring with the devil who was dressed in green garments, receiving a horseshoe from the devil, and laying it in a secret part of the door that all her business indoors might prosper, casting away and sinking George Holdy's ship with several persons therein. After a long trial, she was acquitted. Why do you like Halloween so much? Halloween so much. It's always Halloween in my soul. Halloween so much. Please be good Always Halloween. Children of the night. Why do you like Halloween so much? Always
centuries to come.